Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Franz Bouchard. And I'm Matt Dixon. And today we're joined by Dr. Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Prior to joining the Institute in 2018, Gemma was economics correspondent at the Financial Times. And before that, she was a researcher at the Institute for Fiscal Studies for more than a decade. Gemma, thanks for being on. In episodes of Policy Matters, we've talked to a lot of economists, often from academia, also some non-economists. But today is a bit of a new one for us. You are an economist, but you are from the third sector as such. Uh, You work for a think tank for the Institute for Government. Do you want to tell us and our listeners a little bit what is a think tank and what does your specifically do? The Institute for Government is a non-partisan think tank, so we're not politically aligned. We try to be neutral between the wings of the parties. Um, We focus on how to make government more effective. So in a sense, we're a bit unusual among other think tanks. And many other think tanks look at making policy recommendations. What policy should government pursue? The Institute for Government is much more focused on how should government get things done. Given what its policy objectives are, how can it most effectively do that? Sounds like you're trying to make the world a better place no matter what. That is certainly uh, probably a fair description of our objectives. Um, I guess you could say at the moment, given how little is going on outside Brexit in government, perhaps we're not doing all that much to make government more effective. But that that is what we try to do. Well, that's interesting because I know um, at the Institute for Government, you do have a number of different kind of research areas that you're working on trying to yeah think about how do we make government more effective. Um, one of those areas is Brexit. It's the kind of the word we've tried to avoid quite a lot on on policy matters over the past few years. But um, I think today there's no avoiding it anymore. But do you find as you know, chief economist working at the Institute for Government, we know much of government's been kind of sucked into this Brexit vortex. Have you found that your work has been similarly uh, directed down that way? Or have you been able to uh, work across all the different areas? So we have a number of work streams, probably about a third of IFG's work at the moment is on Brexit, but we also do work on policy making within Whitehall, uh, on how public services perform um, and various other areas. I've actually, perhaps interestingly, been less involved in the Brexit side of our work. I have done some work on that front and last year I did some work trying to look at the range of economic forecasts that have been made for the impact of Brexit and try and explain why do people come to different answers. Um, But actually more recently I haven't been doing that much work on Brexit and I think that's because the Brexit debate has really got very much into the, the politics and the parliamentary procedure and the economics hasn't really changed. We know what the economic trade-offs are with the different Brexit options and actually that's not an area where much more work needs to be done and it's it's been less the focus of debate. So I've therefore been working more on some of the IFG's other areas of work including things like how public services are performing and that's obviously been a big issue in the background of public debate in the UK is after nearly a decade of austerity how are services actually holding up and why are we starting to see cracks appear across different services. Cracked, I think. <laughs> the wall has <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say that you've been able to look at different areas of, of, of policy and, and, and government because we have had this kind of feeling of, you know, there's just been a policy vacuum because of, you know, Brexit. Understandably, a lot of resources have gone into that because it's a massive area Then we want to get this right um, for the future. But what can government do now for kind of reinvigorating domestic policy? What would be your kind of prescription for doing that? I mean, we've had three years of really a lot of focus going into Brexit and that 
impacting on government's inability to make progress elsewhere. If you look back at what happened under Theresa May, there are sort of a few reasons why there wasn't so much progress in other areas. Firstly, particularly after the 2017 election, when Theresa May lost her majority in Parliament, it's much harder for a minority government to make progress on anything. Uh, Brexit sort of compounded those issues. There was disagreement within the cabinet, so you saw the breakdown of the usual cabinet unity. Normally, cabinet ministers would all sing from the same hymn sheet in public, but actually you saw leaks from cabinet. That went completely out the window, didn't it? For a time there where it was just, yeah, everyone breaking ranks. Everyone breaking ranks. You had things like the votes on Heathrow where Boris Johnson was conveniently out of the country when the vote happened so that he didn't have to actively vote against the government. But that's pretty unusual that cabinet members would be allowed to dissent from government policy in that way. You also saw that because of problems around Brexit, there was quite a lot of ministerial turnover as people resigning from government and being replaced. And so there were areas like prisons, for example, where you had seven secretaries of state at the Ministry of Justice and seven different prisons ministers in six years. And so there were things on the government's agenda, like reforming sentencing and reforming how prisons operate, that just never made any progress because you didn't have people in place for long enough. I mean, because it seems to me that Brexit will sort of transmute into some sort of, you know, uh, trade policy that will last for years and years. And then I was talking to some academic economists the other day who are working with the Department for International Trade about what the policies might be. And, you know, and they're basically saying it's looking really tough. Uh, many years of negotiations, no bargaining power. So that will kind of just continue just to linger and linger and linger for years and, and just not go away. Uh, it's kind of almost a little bit depressing, I guess. I think the reality is that Brexit and our future trade relationships with the EU and other countries are going to continue to take up a lot of time. And really, the issues that have been taking up a lot of attention in the withdrawal period, which are the divorce bill, um, EU citizens' rights, uh, the relationship with Northern Ireland, uh, and what would happen in a transition period. That's kind of a small subset of the things that need to start to be thought about in terms of a future trade relationship. So there are huge ranges of regulations where we haven't really started asking those questions. We certainly haven't started having the public debate about how do we trade off our agricultural sector against access to services markets overseas. Um, so there are all sorts of these issues that I think haven't come on the agenda yet and, and are going to have to. Because that is the thing. It, it does feel like domestic policy is going to be mired in this um, continued discussions about future relationships for some time. But one thing that has been talked about recently is the Chancellor, uh, Sajid Javid, has said, OK, austerity, you know, big announcement, austerity is coming to an end. So all this policy since since the coalition, really, and, and post-financial crisis, we're cutting back on government spending. We're trying to get the deficit uh, under control. And, you know, it's interesting because this is a policy that in the media, it seems uh, that if you read the newspapers, you think that, OK, everyone is on board with this is the right thing to do. But I think actually academic economists and professional economists have often said, you know, this isn't austerity. You know, the argument was one that we shouldn't have austerity, that actually it chokes off um, growth at a time uh, when we should be investing and the government's cutting back spending. And there's this kind of disconnect between what the professional economists might say, what the academic economists would say, and what the Treasury goes ahead with and what the politicians go ahead with. How do these kind of how does this disconnect come about? I think 
the position of academic economists has probably evolved over time, partly as circumstances have changed. I think if you went back to 2010, you're in a position where UK government was borrowing close to 10% of GDP. And I think a fair number of academic economists would have agreed with the broad government line that we can't carry on borrowing 10% of GDP. We need to get the public finances back um, to a more sustainable state. But there was always a question of exactly how fast and how far do you cut borrowing and how do you do that, the trade-off between tax increases and spending cuts. Um, so I think you're right that more recently academic economists have perhaps been surprised by how low government borrowing rates have continued to be. The deficit has now reduced to much more sustainable levels, kind of below where we were before the financial crisis. And so academic economists are, ma are making an increasingly strong case that the government could afford to borrow more. And particularly if you use that borrowing for productive investment, then that could boost the economy as well. I don't think it's that the Treasury and ministers don't understand those arguments, but I think there is a difference between the political arguments for having a target to eliminate borrowing versus the economic rationale for picking that target. Yeah, it seems to me that, 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 that the spread between sort of the political rationale and the sort of academic or economic rationale has kind of grown in the last decade, but not only here, also in other countries. If you look at Germany, there's a, you know this ever lengthy debate about you know the budget surplus and whether they should be spending, especially now that you know exports are kind of diminishing and sort of you know Germany is starting to take its GDP hits. Still, they're not budging from this ideological line that you know they're comparing the government budget with that of a household and that you know they want to save. They don't want to spend more money that they take in, uh, and these are very entrenched positions, and you kind of see it across Europe. Um, I mean, is there any way we can meet up again <laughs> as, as, as academic economists and politicians? So I think there are, there are reasons that politicians like having quite stringent borrowing targets. And certainly if you look at the UK case, you can see that for George Osborne and then Philip Hammond, having a very stringent borrowing target had benefits both in terms of drawing a line between what the Conservatives were offering and what Labour were offering. The Conservatives were saying we're going to be harder on getting the government to live within its means um, and that's our selling point. I think it also helps with the Chancellor's power relative to other ministers within government because as long as you can say that borrowing is too high, we need to get it down, that's a really good line of defence against other ministers who constantly want more money to spend on their areas. I think that's become more difficult as borrowing has come lower and lower. And I guess that's where the divide has opened up between the academic economists and the politicians. When borrowing was at 10%, everyone sort of broadly agreed on the direction of travel, even if they weren't quite sure what the destination was. We're now at a point where borrowing is sufficiently low that actually politicians are talking about continuing to cut it, while academics are saying, actually, we should be going in the other direction. Um, in the UK, actually, I think the politicians are now on a very similar page to the academic economists. We have Sajid Javid talking about the need for more investment. Um, they do seem to have taken the constraints of um, spending. But that does raise some sort of political challenges for the government of how do you enforce some sort of fiscal discipline at a time when you're happy to increase borrowing. Do you find in your own work that people are listening to you these days? And when I say people, I'm talking about civil servants, but also politicians, especially sort of compared to, I don't know, a couple of years ago. I was talking to some other economists, certainly the trade economists I was talking to a couple of weeks ago, and they said they're really being listened very closely to by uh, the civil servants, senior civil servants, but also the politicians who are kind of leading that department. 
Um, so from my point of view, it's, bit, it's quite difficult because I've moved around different roles. Sure. So I guess I've been having different interactions with politicians and civil servants. I think it's definitely right that Brexit has brought up a whole load of questions um, that there were academic economists who had views on, particularly around trade policy, that just hadn't been part of um, policy in the UK. And so you have seen a huge surge in the relevance and the amount that civil servants and politicians want to talk to those people. Um, I think there always will be some areas where politicians may, may have quite ideological positions and maybe less open to looking at the evidence. But when I talk to civil servants and advisors one-to-one, actually I think behind the scenes politicians are looking at the evidence, even if in public sometimes they sound right. very categorical that they're not open to that. I think, so when we think about this use of evidence and how academics talk to policymakers and whether they are listening or not and but often in between we've got this kind of media and so you get um, messages that get filtered from politicians through the media to the public you've got messages from the academics that are trying to get to um, the politicians and um, obviously how the politicians respond slightly depends as well as how the media are going to pick this up and how that's going to play out so just thought Given your experience as someone who's worked as a as a researcher, an academic economist, but also within uh, the media, uh, and now kind of talking more directly in with with policymakers and government, uh, I thought it'd be interesting if, to just get your views on the view of of the media of economists, right? So I think in recent years we had Michael Gove um, saying, you know, in this country we've had enough of experts, famously. And I think a lot of people he had in mind were economists. Um, that m- might be paranoia, but I think, you know, um, economists have had a kind of... There's been a turn in the media against economists, which wasn't the case. So we, I remember if we go back to about 2015, there was an article in the New York Times was, which was asking, have we reached kind of peak economists? Because economists seem to be, you know, flavour of the, the month or the year in terms of um, you looked at articles there and, and you were much more likely to have quotes from an academic economist than a historian uh, or a psychologist and this is you know not how it was 50 years ago academics from different disciplines would be fairly um, evenly uh, quoted but econ- economists seem to take over so I guess the question is like where's it all gone wrong for economists and this relationship with the media? Um, I think it's, it would be easy to overstate how badly wrong the reputation of economists has become. I think economists' reputations have taken a bit of a hit around um, the Brexit debate. But, and I haven't looked at the data, I suspect economists are still more widely quoted than many other academic disciplines um, are. I mean, I think there's fault on both sides in the way that economists were portrayed around the Brexit debate and particularly the discussions around the economic impact of Brexit. I think... On the side of economists, and in no way want to tar all economists with this brush because the vast majority of economists working in the UK do not do trade modelling and had nothing to say uh, from their own work um, in this area. Um, but thinking about the, the economic work that was kind of covered in, in the media. From the economist side, I think one perhaps mistake was to try and construct very complex models to try and predict what the impact of Brexit might be, which ended up producing spuriously precise numbers. And understandably, a good way to get journalists to pick up on your research is to have big headline grabbing numbers that are easy to convey. Um, But perhaps economists weren't good enough at explaining the caveats and the uncertainty. And perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, actually, it would have been 
better um, to have said, actually, economic evidence tells us that trade barriers between countries tend to hamper economic growth. And that is, broadly speaking, what economic evidence tells us that's then being built into these very complex models. The complex models perhaps kind of hid what was really known and perhaps added a spurious certainty um, to that. There were also certainly economists in the debate who were deliberately picking assumptions that suited their point of view and to pick ones on each side. The Treasury modelling before the referendum certainly chose a set of assumptions that suggested that Brexit would lead to an immediate recession because that was a convenient answer to give. On the other side of the debate, the economists for Brexit chose sets of assumptions that suggested Brexit would be great for the UK economy. Um, so there was there were definitely players there who were not giving a good name to really what economists can add to that. I think it feels like that was one of the problems was that, yeah, you have these extremes. And like you say, if you're trying to get journalists to pick up on your story, then having these big numbers and these kind of sensational headlines, and you certainly had that on both sides. So you had, yeah, the Treasury slightly more alarmist kind of forecasts and then the economists for Brexit that were very much you know, sunlit uplands kind of forecasts and, and very divergent estimates. And then it, most of the other assessments were fairly similar uh, in, the, in the middle of those of those two. But I guess the noise that just comes from that and then the perception in the public is just, oh, you know, no one really knows, right? Because we just get bombarded with these numbers. And I think that's probably where the fault of the media comes into this, that particularly for those journalists who perhaps were less expert in this area and weren't able to interpret what the value of these different forecasts coming out were. Actually, there was sometimes it was presented too much as, well, some people say this, some people say that. Nobody really knows. It's all just opinion. Um, and that made it difficult. The media could have presented it and some bits of the media did present much more clearly actually where the weight of economic evidence was. I think you're exactly right. And it was one of the reasons why I prefer reading the FT these days, because uh, it's very much data driven, and evidence driven, the, the articles in there. And I've kind of really over the last, especially in the Brexit years, turned away from any publications that are too politically motivated without evidence underneath. But I must say from a personal experience as well, as an economist who walks down the street, you know, people often say, oh, you're an economist, you know, tell me about Brexit. You know, and my response would be, I don't know anything about Brexit. I'm a labor economist. And within that, I specialize in education economics. So, and But I know enough about statistical methodology that I shouldn't be answering your question because it's really complicated. And, you know, evaluation methods and statistics do, unfortunately, in modern day and times, get quite complicated. There's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of innovation in mathematics and statistical models that produce these kind of results. And without a good grasp of, of what's underneath it, it's very dangerous to say, oh, it's good or bad, and, you know, to, to, to give a very simple opinion. So I tend to stay away from it as an economist. And, and in most social conversations I have when people talk to me about Brexit, I stay away immediately because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult topic. And I think that's a good general rule. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, well, and a rule for us on this program as well. I, I do stay away from it, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's difficult. You know, if you look at the immigration debate, for example, I mean, I'm hoping to get somebody on in immigration at some point soon. But, you know, for years there's, this, uh, there's been this argument about, okay, you know, there's too many immigrants coming to the UK. They're damaging the labor market. And just like with the minimum wage, evidence and uh, evidence has shown that, you know, there is no or at least very little adverse impact of, of, of immigration 
since the 2000s into the UK on UK wages and employment levels of, of natives, right? And and it's just it's something that doesn't filter through. Uh, you know, the evidence is out there, but for whatever reason, it just just doesn't get picked up and reported properly. So with a lot of these things, whether it is modelling the impact of Brexit or thinking about immigration and effects on, on wages and, and impacts in the labour market, it is very complicated and it's not so straightforward to explain to the public or to explain to a journalist who hasn't got very much time to kind of um, go into it. Um, so it's it's a problem communicating clearly with the media. But at the same time, you could say exactly the same about things like astrophysics. And yet um, someone like Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, does an amazing job of uh, communicating scientific research in his area, which is, you know, I'm sure we like to think that economics is very complicated and all the stuff we do is very fancy, but actually I'm sure it's not. It literally is not rocket science. <laughs> and uh, whereas the stuff that Brian Cox does is dealing with those kind of, you know, physics, etc. Um, you know, what can economists learn from other sciences about how to get people um, interested and also how to communicate some complex things uh, in a more people-friendly way? So I think some of the things that people find most difficult to get their heads around are often the general equilibrium or the macroeconomic impacts of things. If you take the example of immigration, people can really understand that their friend can't get a job as a builder because all the jobs in their area are taken by Romanians or Hungarians. Um, and it's very hard to explain to people the macroeconomic impact of immigration, which is that those people come here, they earn money, they then go and buy things in the shops, which means that somebody in a shop or in a hairdresser's or elsewhere in the economy has a job um, that they wouldn't otherwise have. And I think it is harder to convey those bigger picture things. But I think economists do need to find ways of telling that story to make it clear to people why perhaps their original perception of the partial equilibrium impact isn't actually how things play out across the economy as a whole. And I think you can find ways of doing that without completely undermining the academic rigour and the, the truth of what, what your research shows. So we just need, we need to work harder, really, uh, thinking about how we explain things in a way that um, is ex more accessible to people and more kind of resonates with their own experience? I think economists do need to do more of that, so engage with people's own experience and perhaps take more opportunity to understand what the popular rhetoric is and to think about how can I explain what I know to be true in a way that actually counters that rhetoric. You're sounding like a sociologist. <laughs> we don't want to go there. No, no, but you're right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And uh, some of the best economists I've seen recently have actually made statements along the lines of, you know what, go out and talk to people, stop looking at data, and try to build a, a narrative around the mathematical models that we have so that people can relate to it. And I think you're right, 100% right. That is the kind of the way forward. I think that's true. I mean, it, it, I think you can take the criticism of economists that they don't talk to real people enough too far. Um, economists do need to understand and there is information to be gathered by talking to people on the front line. And I think there's quite interesting research now going on trying to think about how can we improve the measurement of GDP, for example, by understanding do these numbers actually measure what we think they do when you look in practice at how we get the data. But I think it's easy to go too far in saying we should ignore data altogether and just talk to people about their experiences because people only have a very partial view of the world and actually economists can 
deliver big value by using aggregate data that might actually challenge people's perceptions. So I don't think we should go too far in saying that economists should just totally throw out the window quantitative research and entirely rely on talking to people on the street and relying on their perceptions. I think, as, as well, we've talked about before, it's having that balance of, of, of using the quantitative data, but actually getting a bit more texture on that and talking to people and understanding kind of lived experience of some of these things. So I think the mixed methods, I think, uh, is a good is a good way forward uh, on this. But as we mentioned, you're, you're a rare breed or possibly even unique in having this experience of being an academic uh, economist working in the media and now working very much in a kind of government facing role in in the think tank and Franz and I were talking back in the summer about the need for academics in general and certainly economists to engage with policymakers and make sure that our research is fed into the policy making uh, process have you from your side sensed any change over the years in this any from the researcher side or from the policymaker side in terms of that willingness to engage and feed in and, and make impact I think from the policymaking side, there was definitely a phase during the New Labour era when evidence-based policymaking was very much at the forefront and government departments right across the spectrum were doing a lot of piloting policy interventions, commissioning external researchers to evaluate that and then tweak the policy design before implementation. Um, My sense is that when the financial crisis happened and government budgets started to be cut back, one of the things that got cut back was budgets to commission external research. And so my experience has been there's much less direct engagement of government departments funding academics to do very policy-focused research. I don't think that means that policymakers aren't trying to source information about the academic expertise. It's just there's a less of that direct funding of research going on. From the research side, I think almost the reverse has perhaps happened. There's been a growing emphasis on the need for academics to engage with policymakers and have impact. I think that's still on a bit of a journey. Um, those processes and how impact gets rewarded within the academic community is developing. And I think it's starting having a bit more recognition of the way the policymaking cycle works. So I think sort of version one was that you had to show that your paper had been published in an academic journal and then subsequent to that the policy had changed in response and obviously that's not really how the cycle works particularly for economists there are long lags in getting your papers published so what might happen in practice is that you've done the research you've talked to policymakers about it and the policy may actually change well before your great paper comes out in the top academic journals often often that's the way (laughs) Um, so I think it's still a work in progress and there's there's more to be done to ensure that academics are given the funding and the reward for actually doing that policy impact work. Yeah, it's a difficult journey. We had a we had a, a discussion about this where we actually discussed the role of academics and impact specifically and how that works. And you're right, academics are trying to find their way through this. I think they're doing better now than they were, you know, seven eight years ago. But it's still we have some way to go. Um, let me ask you a little bit about uh, things going forward, um, sort of putting Brexit aside for a second and just sort of putting you into the spotlight a little bit. What kind of sort of policy initiatives would you like to see coming out of this or any future government? Where, where, where's your, where would you like to see the focus? One of the things that's sort of top of my mind at the moment, because I'm doing some research on it, is around uh, reform of the tax system. So it's been one area where 
governments have struggled to make changes that academic economists and others have been talking for years about being needed. Because do we we have the most complicated tax book in the world right that's that's often said we have the more complicated tax for business and for individuals than anywhere else it depends how you measure it and you can talk about pages of tax legislation and perhaps none of them quite capture exactly how complex the tax system is but there are certainly pretty big well-known areas where the tax system in the uk is either unnecessarily complicated or it's just very inefficient. You could raise money in a better way and still achieve the same sorts of distributional outcomes that the government is looking for. Is there anything you're thinking of specifically? Uh, There are a variety of things. Um, So, for example, uh, taxation of property in the UK is a bit of a mess. We raise most of the money through transactions taxes, which just discourage people from trading houses that they don't want. I'm very unhappy. I just paid a lot of money to buy a new house. (laughs) Whereas, if we change it, change it retrospectively, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whereas I don't want any changes to council tax bandings, which have you know not reflected changes in house prices, right? So that that is an area where um, there's a lot of people who have houses that over a period of time have become much more valuable than when they bought them, and in fact, their you know their, their tax they pay on it through council tax just hasn't changed. So that feels much as I you know wouldn't want it to change, but I, as a researcher and as a, a human being, I guess I would think it should change probably to reflect that there's, there's an asset there and it's not really being uh, taxed in a, in a fair way for society. This is actually one of the problems with thinking about property tax in the UK is that no government clearly articulates why we tax property. If you think of council tax as being a development of the poll tax, it was a charge for locally delivered services, which may suggest you don't want it related to your property value. But it, it is partly currently structured in some way related to the value of property. And if you really wanted a proper tax that was proportional to property values, the current one clearly doesn't deliver on that. So we need both a bit more clarity from politicians about what are they trying to achieve with property tax in the UK. And given that, put in place a system that actually achieves that more rationally. And are there any policy ideas that you think this would be really good? No one's talking about this. It'd be great to hear this brought into public debate in the future. Some, I don't know, left field things that could have potential for um, real change or, or real progress. It's not really a left field idea, but I think the issue of social care funding in the UK clearly needs to be addressed. Governments have kept talking about it. We know the range of solutions, but we need a government that can actually come up with and agree with the public what that solution is going to be. Similarly, I think we're missing a proper debate about the balance. What size of state do we want? What quality of services do we want? And how are we willing to pay for that through the tax system? We've been in a slightly fairy tale um, debate around this with promising extra money for spending without ever really talking about the other side of the equation. Great. Uh, Gemma, thank you very much. That's all we have time for. But thank you so much for this uh, really interesting discussion. You've been listening to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And we'll be back with more soon.